Welcome to the Pivotcast. This episode was recorded on November 15th, 2017 at the Transact Club. This episode contains readings from Susan Alexander, Alicia Elliott, and Resiqua Revolva. Just so you know, this episode contains a bit of strong language. Listener's discretion is advised. Three amazing readers for you tonight. Susan Alexander, all the way from Bowen Island, BC. Woo! Where I come from. Oh, yeah. Happy to be another BC person. Um, Resika Revolva is here with some amazing uh, sound processing. Can't wait. And Alicia Elliott is on her way, but it's going to be awesome and worth the wait. Uh, so, Susan, whenever you're ready, uh, I For me, a woman in her fifties, hair dull with dye, flanked, sorry, flanked by cronies. She listed infirmities as numerous as the cherries rolling by. Her hands darted, deft as a lace maker, picked out the split and the bruised. Beside me, the top girls I drank with in high school, the ones who still smoked who had sex in the back of Camaros, belonging to boys who worked at the mill, girls who weren't headed to university when summer was over. After eight days, the whistle blew for break and the belt stopped. I fell off my stool, mesmerized. The foreman moved me up the chain. 
alone. I pushed boxes of things around a corner. When that crop was done, we all got laid off until the next call came. I never went back. Some nights before sleep, I see them glide by, a stream of profligate hearts. This, um, this next poem is, uh, it's my shopper's drug mark poem. <laughs> and uh, where sadly I developed an all too common obsession and affliction. Um, the rack. <laughs> that summer job at Mike's drugstore in Osuya meant windowless coffee breaks amid returned merchandise and damaged goods. While I chewed through cheap boxes of leprous chocolates and emptied indifferent sweets from burst bags, I'd study the shiny girls, thin as paper, who lounged on sailboats and South Sea atolls. My polyester blue uniform tightened. My belly and thighs swelled like rising dough. My favorite had a gap between her front teeth like me. I knew all their glossy names, ages, heights, weights. Silent between slender magazine sheets, they witnessed my decline. Some were startled by the cellophane crunch. Others were cryptic as the last toffee cleared the bag in the airless staff room. A local boy at the dance slurred, didn't you used to be beautiful? <laughs> the covers came off at the end of the month when the latest issues hit the rack. I took the ditched ones home with me into our detached garage. They watched me open the deep freeze with its buckets and tins of ice cream and mums, oatmeal, coconut cookies, wafer thin, especially crisp when frozen. Each bite cut flesh like some girls do. Instead of sleeves, I hid in subcutaneous layers. Airbrushed beauties rustled their pages, arching towards each other, all hollow cheeks, chiclet smiles. So. <laughs> this next one, um, the place we moved to in a series, uh, which is in the Okanagan, Southern Okanagan, um, it is, we had this little motel, like little, and, uh, and um, we ended up renting this kind of dairy queen place next door, and we, we'd run it for six months, and uh, I've got sisters, and we were automatically the staff of this place, and my dad, so this is what, to all of you who ever had the experience, of working with your father. It's called the Avalon. It was a fast food joint on Highway 3 where it turned into Main Street. Picnic tables in the breezeway, credence screaming up around the bend on the jukebox. No drive-through windows like today. People had to park, get out of their cars. My father was boss, shape-shifted from grease monkey in his own garage to short-order cook. Short-temper cook, more like it. Hotter than burgers, sizzling on the grill. 
hotter than chips in the deep fat fryer, him and his shout and his bottomless rum and coke just inside the cooler door. Scariest thing for me was making chicken dinners when he was crazy busy and the grill was packed. I'd crank up the flames under the pressure cooker in the back, drop thighs, legs, breasts, wings into popping oil, then twist the metal top on tight as I could. Timing was critical and I was racing up front with customers at windows, making change with fingers burnt from bagging burgers. Milkshakes whizzed on metal sticks while I erected dazzling ziggurats of soft ice cream cones. All the time at the back, the pressure built. Always I expected the explosion. My father's holler, flying metal, boiling oil, fast food, shrapnel, casualties. When the cooker's valves got flipped up, they screamed like murder, smeared the air with steam and grease. I served up impossible crispy gold on a cardboard container. For years, I wore burn scars on the soft insides of my arms. They are faded, almost gone. So is my father. Nowadays, summer never gets that hot. Um, I'm going to read one more from the book, and then I, I want to read you some newer, a few, a few newer poems. And this one is again about my dad. It's called Full Fathom Five. Creosote soaked summer morning by the pilings where you used to mooch for salmon. White-haired anemones wave underwater. Your children kneel with you for the first and last time. Knees grind on the swim grid. We cradle the hand-turned urn and watch, watch ashes hematite flash in the thick green deep. Glints like lures. Words empty, solemnity dries into silence, into thirst. We get drunk, splash in with shrieks. Our flesh and robed bones move among your scattered flakes, swim through this underwater star cloud. Your wife dives headlong into your depths, tastes you again, salt and wet on her tongue. You lick her everywhere, stroke her hair, hold her hold all of us again. Bone chips like crushed muscles, you were a shell at the end. Withered limbs splayed on the couch, only your belly soft, prednisone swollen. How you loved a trim torso, how you used to turn sideways to show up, <coughs> show off. We two were tongue-tied at the end, while my fingers waved goodbye, feathered your hair, fluttered over hollows of cheek and socket. Before the fire chamber, your wax mannequin lay bo boxed, an unlit candle, only the wick, your hair unchanged, already dead for months. It pulled us into flood tides, hands lost in a white sea. Um, my friend uh, Sandra Campbell is here, and she's a, she's a writer and an activist, and she's been doing a lot of work on the Pickering uh, 
Pickering land express, expropriation, trying to get it redesignated as farmland. And um, I read uh, a, lot, uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote uh, the, the, the pressure of development is something that just really gets under my skin, but it's always hard to write. And I was, um, I had read a couple of, of cursed poems, so I decided to write a couple of cursed poems. So this one's called The Environmentalist Curse. And this is the environmentalist cursing, not being cursed. You know what it's called. May your high gloss phrases turn to spittle and dribble down your chin. May your ever clever answers twist to drivel your lies, plaque your arteries. May your spin wizard unpaid at last pen the truth. May your banker write you off as you wilt in your bed. May the ones who sit with you be those you betrayed. May they smile, hold your limp hand, drone endlessly of muscle beds and greenways, eelgrass and red-listed species. May alders sprout like arugula through the roads you have tarmacked. May stair-step moss fill cracks in the crazed rocks. Maidenhair ferns find homes in your boreholes. May your body be composted, dug deep in the conservancy garden. May heirloom tomatoes ripen as red as your choleric cheeks. May they burst in the mouth with a sweet tang. This one, I, I thought, you know what? What would the developers say? What would the developers curse me? So, sorry, Sandra, I wrote a developer's curse. <laughs> May municipal workers spray weed killer through your garden's margins onto your carefully unmodified kale. May you be sterile as the rapeseed Monsanto sells. May you discover your home once housed a meth lab, that its gyprock walls exude fumes through the fresh coat of non-toxic paint. May you sing your protest songs to town councils on retainer. May you neglect your day job and lose it. May your, your opinion become commodity, bought and sold for English gold. May you start to use your own people like plastic cutlery, your old ideals like styrofoam plates serving up propaganda and overflowing the landfill. May your hopes be felled like the old growth forest. Your dreams fed to the chipper and turned to mulch for the footpaths that cross my sprawling <coughs> subdivision. May you live in one and end up loving it. <laughs> um, and this last poem I'll read is a, it's a poem about, it's really, a, well, I'm not going to tell you what it's about, but it's about all these things. And uh, it's, it, but the uh, it's called a chandelier of sex and propagation. And yes, we'll just leave it there. A chandelier of sex and propagation. Today, 
After I've washed the mason jars and left the bay leaf, the bones, the carrots, onions, and celery tops to simmer into soup stock on the stove, I will plant a garden mix of lettuce seed. With an empty cup, I wander the long driveway where catkins dangle from the alders overhead. Light, winsome, wind-swung harbingers, vestigia of the deus, teaching me to be undead again when the night loses its hold on hope for dreaming. I am looking for earthworms to go in the raised beds. Though the rain stopped before dawn and the worlds turned golden with dust, siskins land in puffs of pollen on the bare branches. What seemed to stretch and creep are tree flowers fallen on blacktop. It's a long time now since I didn't know I was killing the earth. Not just the diesel, but the wanting more while sighing over TV liars. I am gone far underground to hide from those hungry birds my scruples. I pull out the weeds, bury my hands in black dirt, pretend I'm pure. Thank you so much, Susan. And Susan is too modest, but she does have books available for sale here at the uh, uh, Ghost Man book table back there. So barter with the ghost and you can get yourself one. Uh, is he great? Is it cool to go now? You're all ready? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so so excited to have my friend Rasikra come up and read. Um, Rasikra is a Toronto, sorry, Rasikra Revolva is a Toronto-based poet, multimedia artist, editor, musician, and performer. She was recently awarded second place in the 2017 Blodwin Memorial Prize for Emerging Writers and is in the process of completing an Emerging Writers Mentorship with Diaspora Dialogues for a full-length collection inspired by the city of Toronto. Her debut chapbook of poetry and glitch art illustration titled Cephalography was published by Words on Pages Press in October of 2016. This year's hottest club is the note file on the secret job. <laughs> um, her band, the Databass, Databass. sorry. <laughs> is that one of those vase vase things? No, it's like, or it's like actually. I, I just like assonance. So yeah. it's like, I like the vowels. It's not database. I like the way it sounds. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Database. I like that. Okay. <laughs> and other time it's data. That's cool. <laughs> Her band, the Bass, has recently signed to Slice Records Australia, commencing with the re-release of their album, oh god, Chiroptera, one more time, Michelle, Chiroptera Tronic. Yes. Very well done. <laughs> In April of 2017. Yeah. So soon. No, wait. Did that, did that already pass? Yes, that, that, that's when it's commencing. Sorry. <laughs> I can't. I gotta go it on. Happens, uh... <laughs> um, instead of listening to me blabber, you should just go to her website. It is uh, reciquerevolva.com. Just get on up here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone. <laughs> made me feel very welcome, very happy. No, but seriously, I'm very, very excited to be here. I'm going to be doing a series of poems from multiple different collections and chapbooks that I'm working on. So 
I'll probably give you guys like a little bit of an intro for each of them, which I have not prepared, and that <laughs> was not a great idea on my part. So um, we're going to start off with a poem called The Best Way to Eat a Samosa. And um, like y'all can feel free to disagree, that's fine. Like people are wrong every day <laughs> of my life. So this is belonging to a chapbook which is called, um, if you know, um, that was just, you know, <laughs> Um, if you forget the whipped cream, you're no good as a woman, which is a quotation from the VKLL Sailor Moon like fan sub VHSs that I used to order when I was 11, um, a very long time ago. And uh, it's, yeah, it's a chapbook about food and consumption and um, femininity, body horror of motherhood which is something that freaks me out a lot, and a bunch of different experimental. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> We're going to hear a poem, and it's the best way to eat a samosa. <laughs> the best way to eat a samosa title. Lip participants with passion passing through pain, penitence, into punishment, perverting purpose. With ferocity, with feeling, flowing through fullness, toward force, into fury, fomenting failure. <laughs> with discretion, with determination, devouring through discomfort, toward dizziness, into dyspnea, dazzling. The best way to eat a samosa is the best way to eat everything. Alright, this next poem is from an entire different collection, but um, rather than talk about those collections, I'm just going to tell you that these next two pieces are going to be in ARC issue 85, which I want to say is happening in February, but if not, you should still pay attention to it. I think it's going to be really dope, and I'm really excited. I haven't been published there yet. And uh, the name of the poem, sorry, one second, is... She spurns the sprouting mycelium condos as she soars past young and ghouls in full daylight. The arc of her talons echoes in her cry. He stumbles to pinpoint the source of her cry, but the sound waves that scrabble to his condo dissolve like winter's memory of daylight. Cubic polygons of shops untouched by daylight will never fade, nor blister, nor blush and cry will honor their connection to their condos. Condos rise, 
Daylight died. Why bother to cry? I had no idea how appropriate that was going to be. I'm really fit. Okay. Uh, this poem is alternately called The Lives of Bivalves or Breeding Grounds, The Stairway, depending on what book it's in. But more importantly, or more importantly to me, it is a coming out poem about um, bivalves. <laughs> really special. It tastes really good. In the beginning, in Salmon, submerged in substrate, sedentary, facile, subdued, suffocated, safe, world fingertips embedded, corrosive touch, coercive love, grit, particles, wholeness, ground, earth, floor, sand, frayed tissue seeped between grains, light, Loose underneath a closet door. Click of dried saliva, dusty pneumal rasp. How many walls can line a pit? Is it more or fewer than four? In the middle, shudder, seek. A crevice to suck clean, suck dry, to spew, frothing filament force field, when muscle to neck or to rock, interstitial, intertidal, caressed by the waves, abraded by the light, lighted by the waves, abraded by the caress, waved by the abrasion, caressed by the light, in the now, ripening reek of mammalian secretions, piquant lick of brine, flushing, soaking, gelid tubes and chainsaw tongues, exposure, bracing, glowing, Beak, eye, sphincter, cilia, hook, exposure. The swirling roar of synthesis, milk and rainbow spitting fire from a silken core. Seizing light most ardently, resting free, resting free. <laughs> Poisonous punchline, strangle each wavering horror. 
weaponized, it's dead, it's toxic, it's flesh, it's only natural. A strapless javelin slicing through the water's surface, LED blue, seafoam white, brick red. Fins deployed and arms displayed, the Japanese flying squid holds his first breath. A tragic waste of jet propulsion, a mockery of patriotic display, vivisect the abomination, militarize their erosion horror. My love, it's only natural. Right, I'm gonna do two more. Um, they both deal with different elements of sexual violence. So I'm gonna just chill setting them up and if anybody wants to leave, like that's totally fine. I'm not gonna notice and I'm not gonna, you know, have any any bad thoughts towards any of y'all. Um, I was debating a lot whether or not I wanted to do any of these pieces tonight because on the one hand I'm feeling like incredibly inundated with too much of this right now, so I thought maybe I should be providing something that's a bit of a break. But at the same time, the subject of at least one of these poems just started showing up again in my life a lot and started walking their dog down my street way too often, and I just, I don't know how to deal with it, so I gotta read a poem about it. That doesn't mean you have to listen to it. But I, I, I'm gonna do that, and I hope that's all right. Man's first servant. <coughs> and wild horse, tripping and stumbling on his long mane, said, That is true. Give it me to eat. Oh, 
Um, both this and the last one also belong to a couple of collections, but one of which is called Cerebrospinal Fluid, and it's all found poetry. That last piece was a uh, bilingual palindrome using all semi-consecutive lines found while trying to learn French using Duolingo. <laughs> and this next piece is an erasure poem using one of my favorite books, which is uh, Hangs a Man by Shirley Jackson. And um, the title is My Favorite Shirley Jackson Book Was Eaten by My Rapist Dog. My favorite Shirley Jackson book was eaten by my rapist dog. I didn't know dogs really did that. I am God. The disagreeably clinging, sweet, sharp sensation of being. I gave you this to try you out. Understand, I am interested in seeing you right. And in encouraging you to be a good writer. The gap between the poetry redacted wrote and the poetry redacted contained was full bosomed and rich. Sister, mouth against grass, sun, mountains, sister, made of radiant colors. I didn't hear you. I was myself instead. Now, walk away faster. Here, inside the darkness, and the darkness pulled about her with silent, patient hands, and the darkness pulled about her with silent, patient hands. I don't remember, nothing I remember endlessly happened. I will not think about it, 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 I will not think about it. The most horrible was the mirror. Of course, I am dreaming. How profoundly interested I am in your ideas about death. My ambition, my plan. If you abandon me, you lose yourself. You're devoted, redacted. I am not really very frightened. I am enclosing it caressing the spine with great delicacy, dislodging the nails which remain intact while my fingers pull hinges apart, carefully together, breathing, fainting, crying, looking, coming with sure, careful fingers packed inside the small, sweet bones. was an awful thing, breathing, and breathing, conscious of breathing, where I had been thinking, it had been breathing.
Do you want to go back? Do you want to bend and break wide open so that there is nothing and nothing and nothing except me and what I want waiting in the darkness? Lie back. Close your eyes. Say, I am where I belong. It's natural and quiet and exciting. Remember, remember, remember. Wait a while, I'm almost ready. I'm almost ready. It won't take long. I thought it was a game. Redacted says. Keep thinking of it as a game. Redacted said and put out the cigarette. So happy to introduce Alicia. Alicia Elliott is a Tuscarora writer living in Brantford, Ontario with her husband and child. Her writing has been published by the Malahat Review, The New Quarterly, The Walrus, McLean's, Globe and Mail, and many others. Her amazing essay, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground, won gold at the National Magazine Awards, and has been selected to be published in Best Canadian Essays 2017. She's most recently been named the 2017-2018 Jeffrey and Margaret Andrew Fellow at UBC. Please welcome Alicia. Um, was published recently in the West End Phoenix. Um, it's a new newspaper. It's really cool. I'm going to read this essay now. It's about when I used to live not too far from here in the Lansdowne area. Okay. <clears throat> Every time I come back, my blood runs a little faster through my veins. Run through these streets, my instincts say. Run your fingertips over the sides of each brick of each building. Feel the roughness, the sturdiness, the strength. Feel the sun and the particular way it cuts through the trees, warming your neck, your arms, your legs, before its unblinking attention becomes too much and you go home sunburned. Hear the night, which is never totally silent. Raccoons hissing or late night liquored up strangers laughing or street sweepers rumbling or delivery trucks beeping while backing up. See the night, see how its darkness always has an escape hatch, a street light or lit up store sign to guide you home even when the city's radiance blocks out the stars. Place your hand over this neighborhood's heart. Feel it beat against your palm. Love its perfection. Love its imperfection. Feel home again. But I'm not home again. Not really. Warren Lansdowne hasn't been my home for seven years. My brother Mikey, a freshly minted adult, is moving here to go to school. It'll be his home soon. I'm not one to believe in fate but I can recognize a good coincidence when I see one. This is definitely a coincidence. As we walk past the familiar streets together, the value village, the coffee time, the restaurants drawing us in with sense of curry and coffee and cookies and chicken, I see his eyes go wide with possibility. I'm sure mine did back then too. 
I'm sure they're doing the same now. After all, few are immune to the shiny neon and collapsed boundaries of big city capitalism. Mikey shows me his apartment. It's small, like mine was, but at least its floors are level. I know he'll push against the smallness, the tightness, assert himself within this space until he feels a sort of cozy comfort in its claustrophobia. Our home in Six Nations was small too, but we had whole fields of green to explore, thick forests to investigate, a browning stream to stick our toes in or rush across. Though the green here is confined to small patches around houses, sometimes longing or lounging luxuriously across a handful of parks, in its place lies a different sort of freedom, anonymity. Toronto is so big, this neighborhood so busy and full, one's personal history gets lost in its frenzy. Back on the res, both Mikey and I were Wes's kid, the newest links in a chain of history that reached back much further than anyone ever bothered to explain to us. But here, amongst all these people who don't know your name or face or history, you can just be you. Unbuckle your uncomfortable past, the city murmurs, or pack it tight in a box and shove it in the back of your closet. Stretch your newly unburdened shoulders. Choose your own adventure. I was still in school when I lived here, finishing an English lit degree, taking hour-long transit rides to York University, where I would read and read and dream. My name would be boldly printed across book spines, too. I took a class on diaspora literatures, attracted by the elusive promise of actual indigenous writers on a course syllabus. It was difficult, combining complex theory with complex books. On top of that, my professor was blindingly, intimidatingly smart, the type of person who mercilessly dissected any answer to any question she posed, and therefore terrified everyone into silence for a few seconds whenever she spoke. Why do you think I included indigenous literature in a diaspora course? She asked one day. I surprised myself by answering without a second's hesitation. Because indigenous people are almost always put in the position where they're displaced on their own lands. My professor didn't say anything. She simply smiled, impressed. I knew I should feel proud that she approved, and I did. But I also felt a pressure building in my chest, one that perhaps was always there but hidden away, like my past. Of course, this is not the same neighborhood I left all those years ago. Time passes and spaces change, whether you're there to witness that or not. Here, at Bloor and Lansdowne, gentrification is now in full swing. Bloor West is now the proud owner of shiny new vegan bake shops and boutique cafes, ventures that seemed unthinkable when those streets held me close. A few restaurants and businesses have already abandoned the area, the trendiness they helped create now turning on them, pricing them out. I can't help but think of Leslie Jameson's essay, Fog Count. She goes to visit a friend in prison and, while there, realizes her experience of the prison as a visitor will never be the same as his as an inmate. The truth is we never occupied the same space. A space isn't the same for a person who has chosen to be there and a person who hasn't. Jameson can ask as many probing questions as she wants, can write down all the details, but she will always, in effect, be a tourist in that space because she can always choose to leave. I wonder if the people who are choosing to bring this money into this neighborhood Choosing to paint over its poverty, swat away its seediness, transform it into something shiny, clean, and appealing to upper-middle-class families. Recognize they too are tourists, inviting in more tourists to take advantage of its low rent and subway access, encouraging them to make homes where homes were already made. They see the neighborhood as a big red X on a treasure map and, shovel in hand, are determined to mine its bounty from beneath the beds of the natives. Meanwhile, those who live here, because they have to, 
who have always made the most of what they've begrudgingly been given, are now being told that their achievements in this space are not enough, that they haven't used the space properly, haven't realized its potential, and must leave to make room for progress. They see that neighborhood as their home, a space that already has inherent worth, whether outsiders recognize that worth or not. Or, as Jameson might call it, same space, but also not the same at all. Before Gore West had a chance to really push me out, Six Nations pulled me back in. That box at the back of my closet, that box holding my history tight, wouldn't stop whispering to me. Don't forget, it said. Don't forget like the city forgot. Don't keep making the same mistakes the city keeps making. Do we keep making the same mistakes? In my diaspora class, we often talked about the experience of diaspora, remembering your past in your former home and constantly measuring it against your present in your current home knowing you can never again re-enter the time and space you left, knowing you've lost access to that possible future forever, knowing your home will change without you, knowing you will change without your home, and knowing, in some instances, none of that was your choice. Jameson wasn't exactly right. There aren't only two ways to consider a place. It isn't just about those who chose to be there and chose those who don't. What about those who had never chosen not to be there? What about those who were forced out often before you ever got there. Tucked away in a box at the back of this city's closet is a history. The history is this. Toronto was once Taparanto. The city ruled by laws was once ruled by treaty. It was dished with one spoon territory, a space that was shared by my people, the Haudenosaunee, the Mississaugas of the New Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Huron, the Wendat. This land was not supposed to have its plenty mined and discarded, it was supposed to be treated as one collective dish each nation had to share, sharing or hunting an equal but sustainable amount of game. All would eat from that dish together, using a beaver tail spoon instead of a knife to ensure there was no accidental bloodshed, which might lead to intentional bloodshed. In this way, it was a space of mutual peace and prosperity. But early settlers approached the land with the eyes of enterprising tourists, looking at its green, its forests, its waters, and seeing a big red X. They forced out the land's native inhabitants and went about realizing this land's potential, laying roads and constructing buildings, later putting up condos and converting old restaurants into cafes. It was the same space, but also not the same at all. No trace of indigenous history is etched into these sidewalks, illuminated by these streetlights, cemented between these bricks. Not when I lived here years ago, and not today. That past is still packed up, forgotten. Descendants of this land's original caretakers are still here, though. We're selling dream catchers at Lawrence Spadina, or dancing in our regalia at the annual powwow at Dufferin Grove Park, or reading on the subway on the school, um, reading on the subway on the way to school. We're here in diaspora on our own lands. We're watching as the same exploitive process that pushed our people out centuries ago continue to push out others today, an updated version with different copyrights attached. Whenever I visit my brother, I'll walk the streets of Bloor and Lansdowne and know this is my version of diaspora. I'll observe the neighborhood with the warm nostalgia and cool distance of a former lover, measuring the present against the past, frowning at disappointing changes, smiling at positive ones, ultimately hopeful. Perhaps one day this neighborhood, this city, this country will finally hear its neglected past whispering. Look at me plainly. Look at me. Look at your patterns. Don't make the same mistakes. Make something new, something beautiful, something that will make everyone proud. That is it. <laughs>
I'll just read something short called um, Boundaries Like Bruises. And um, I wrote it about my husband because I'm really, really snappy. And I've never written anything about him before. So, like, I decided maybe I should do it after, like, so many years of him knocking me up in high school and staying with me through all of my terrible, terrible hormones and me staying with him while he learned to grow up. <laughs> okay, so, boundaries like bruises. Our love was a process of unlearning the bad love we'd been given. I know that now. I feel it when I wipe tears from your cheek, when you hold me close and stroke my back until the sobbing spasms stop. I feel it when we stare one another's traumas down, refuse to tremble, refuse to break. We both came from poor families, lugging legacies we never deserved. I remember the first time, and the last time, that I kicked you out of anger. We were walking through the Price Chopper parking lot beside our high school. I did it in front of your sister and my best friend. You tripped me playfully. I stumbled, but didn't fall. And even as my foot connected with your shin, I thought we somehow would end up laughing. Men getting hurt was funny. Men getting hurt was normal. You didn't laugh. You asked what was wrong with me, and I pretended not to know, but I knew. Trauma and silence flanked me like foot soldiers, only they weren't doing my bidding. I was doing theirs. You never hit me, kicked me, pushed me, punched me. You barely even swore at me. Sometimes I wonder how you conjured up your version of manhood. You had no father you knew, no grandfathers. You had professional wrestling during its most misogynistic era and a couple Blink-182 albums. Neither were particularly revolutionary when it came to their depictions of masculinity. That's not to say we fully shrugged off the roles we've been assigned. You are a man, I am a woman, you are a settler, I'm a wet homely. These differences are stakes in our ground, mapping boundaries that feel like bruises. Any time we push against them, it hurts. But we both know we must be more than historical vessels holding pain, more than performers reenacting ancient scripts. Despite our best efforts, different shades of abuse will still color our interactions, sometimes soft and diluted like watercolors, sometimes harsh and angry like charcoal. Cycles are hard to break. My parents never broke theirs. After 20 years, it broke them. Moving to the Six Nations Reserve did it. Suddenly, my white mother became the minority. For the first time, she felt her whiteness, no longer a shield but a siren, screaming inherited histories she'd either never been taught or forced to forget. Any time my father tried to connect with his Haudenosaunee culture, she felt it, her whiteness blinding and bright, as if a spotlight was being shown on her. She wasn't racist. She couldn't be. She had a native husband, native children. She lived on a reserve. And yet her white fragility and Catholic colonialism were racist. She wasn't happy when my father finally felt pride in his brown skin. She felt wounded, excluded. She accused him of being racist against whites. She accused him of committing a mortal sin, turning his back on the Catholic Church he'd only joined to appease her. I learned three things watching my mother. No one can screw their way to tolerance. No one can marry into tolerance. No one can carry for nine months into birth to tolerance. I learned more watching you. You don't flinch when I say the word white. You don't feel attacked when I discuss colonialism. You encourage me to spend time with my family and community to learn my language, to stand up for my people, to stand up for our land. You encourage our daughter to do the same. You see me as a Haudenosaunee woman, love me as a Haudenosaunee woman, and don't feel threatened by what that means. 
I remember when my father first taught me about the Turo wampum. It was originally a treaty between the Haudenosaunee and the Dutch, but it was accepted by Canada and the Crown. They've never been able to uphold it. It's a belt of white wampum beads representing the river of life. There are two rows of purple wampum that travel through the center. One row represents the ship that the settlers are steering. The other represents the canoe the Haudenosaunee are steering. Each vessel holds those people's culture, language, history, and values. The boat and canoe go down the river of life together, parallel but never touching, never crossing into the other's path, never attempting to steer the other's vessel or interfere with the other's responsibilities. Neither vessel is better than the other. Neither group can make decisions for the other. It's a treaty based on peace and friendship, anchored in a deep respect for each culture's distinctive differences. Because of you, I understand how the two wampum can be more than just a treaty between two nations of people. It can be a lived treaty between two individuals, between us, a Haudenosaunee woman and a settler man. These boundaries don't have to be bruised. They can be our strength. We untangle the threads of history and treat the wounds we find underneath. We listen to one another, support one another, resist our impulses to rewrite one another, to steer one another. We try to understand our distinct physical, emotional, spiritual, and mental needs and meet them as best we can. Anti-racism is a process. Decolonial love is a process. Our love is a process. I never want it to end. For more information on the Pivot Readings, go to pivotreadings.ca. Pivotcast airs on CJRU 1280 AM on Wednesdays and Thursdays starting at 11 p.m. and streams on CJRU.ca.